0: Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 42, Goldfinger. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, we are planning a a few big things to close out our first season. We hope to be bringing you roughly 50 episodes per year, and this is coming out on November 18th. Upcoming, we have our special birthday episode that we announced last week for Dana on My Fair Lady that will include previous guests Sarah and Christine Duncan, as well as our other missing family member, Allison, for a movie that has some long-standing relevance to Dana. Additionally, we had already announced in a previous episode that we will be closing out Season 1 with one of the biggest movies ever, Casablanca, but we will also be doing Home Alone for our Christmas episode. We're also going to start working on a couple of other expansion projects for the show, including our favorite character actors of all time that we hope are as exciting for you as they are for us. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss Goldfinger? I am. All right. So basic overview, as we do every week. Basic plot summary, the powerful tycoon Arik Goldfinger has initiated Operation Grand Slam, a cataclysmic scheme to raid Fort Knox and obliterate the world economy. James Bond, armed with his specially equipped Aston Martin, must stop the plan by overcoming several outrageous adversaries. Uh, This won the Best Sound Effects at the uh, Oscars that year. The American Film Institute has honored the film four times, ranking it number 90 For Best Movie Quote, A Martini, Shaken, Not Stirred. Number 53 for Best Song, Goldfinger. Number 49 for Best Villain, Auric Goldfinger. And number 71 for Most Thrilling Film. It is often also credited as the best James Bond film. So, what is your relationship to this movie, Pop?
1: This is one of the movies that I remember as a small kid watching with my dad back i must have been seven eight years old when this movie played and i want to say it was like the abc you know thursday night movie or something like that and watching this and was just absolutely uh dumbstruck to see a semi-nude woman laying painted in gold that's what i remembered more than anything in the film I suppose that's rather shocking
0: from the context in which you come. Anymore, that's pretty tame by modern cinema standards or even TV standards, so let alone like
1: cable television. Well, I mean, it was network TV, and I I mean, I'm seven. So this is probably 70, 71. They got away with a, a lot for
0: the context of the time.
1: Well, this is right on the cusp of really the revolution, because the first nude scenes were done just shortly before this. Um, I believe there was a nude scene in The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe and uh, Clark Gable, and I know there was definitely a nude scene with Jane Mansfield and Dean Martin in, I believe, 63. So they were... the old blue codes, the the Hayes Act uh had started to fall. And so they were getting away with a lot more.
0: Pushing the boundaries has always kind of been at the forefront of this franchise a little bit and that's part of what drove its popularity. But for me, my relationship to this film, there are two big things that I want to say. So number one, I think when you, you talk about this film, you have to talk about it in context to how you happened upon the franchise. So I remember I was staying with my grandparents one summer, and I needed things to do. Obviously, my grandparents did not have a expansive movie collection. There wasn't a whole lot on TV during the day in the middle of the summer. This was pre-streaming era. So we went to the local library, and they had two James Bond movies. And on DVD my grandparents at least had a DVD player. I, I looked at it, and I'm like, is this potentially any good? It was suggested to me by my grandmother. That's how I got to watch my first couple of Bond movies. So, and part of that is, is that uh, Grandpa actually had, not only did they watch most of the films in theater, so my grandfather took my grandmother to a lot of these films, back when they were first released, but he also had original copies of the books that he has uh, it's laying around your house now. And so he's always been somewhat of a Bond fan, but he specifically liked Sean Connery. And I remember the two Bond films at the time, and it's why it's probably still, it's got a fond memory for me, but the first one I ever watched was Diamonds Are Forever. And it's probably the most campy of the Sean Connery films. It was the one where he comes back for one movie after, uh, basically, George Lazenby kind of quits on the series. And it it was right before they went to Roger Moore for uh, his extended run as James Bond. But the movie, for whatever reason, still is like a favorite of mine. It's just a fun caper type of situation. The other one was Dr. No. So it was a while before I watched Goldfinger as part of the franchise, but it's always been a franchise that's been fun and entertaining, and you can't believe some of the stunts that they get away with. The movies just continue to get more fantastic the longer they go along. There's bigger car chases. There's bigger uh, action sequences. There's more gunfighting. Um, there's bigger stakes, and the villains just keep getting more outrageous as they go along. And so by the time that I was in high school, I'd seen just about every Bond film multiple times. And guess if you could say I was one of the resident Bond experts around high school. So there was another kid, and this is the small part that I want to mention in this, this show. And... Uh, Forgive me for a second for for taking kind of a a moment of reflection. I was one of the big Bond fans in high school, and we had another kid who was even a bigger fan than I was. And he and I used to constantly talk about this. It was the one thing that we really connected on. And he and I were, we played basketball together. We were um, in some similar classes here and there, but... Uh, The school was very small. My graduating class was 51, and we were the largest one in like 10 years. And so most of the grades, he was a year behind me in school, but most of us just hung out together because it was a small community. And I remember him and another friend of mine who did our Pulp Fiction episode, Phil Martinez, we used together, and Phil would be the moderator, and we'd do these really... Uh, multiple-hour-long Bond trivia games, which would be just knock-down, drag-out fights. And usually, Adam would win. Yes, so I guess I shouldn't mention his name here, but Adam Dupree. He would almost always win, but it would be like triple overtime-level stuff. He would seem to just get the edge at the end. He'd know some really obscure thing that even I wouldn't quite get because he just had that level of knowledge of this. and part of that was is so Casino Royale came out when I was in high school, Quantum of solace came out while I was in high school and even after college we uh, connected and we would talk about the release of the new films and what was going on in a lot of these fields. Well, I had lost touch with him over time, you know. People grow apart. They live completely different lives. And uh, he had apparently moved to Iowa and was in the medical field as uh, some sort of technician, I think. And he was doing fairly well for himself. Uh, Unfortunately, about maybe a month, month and a half ago, I can't remember the exact date, um, he passed away in a motorcycle accident in town. And because of how this franchise tied in the news that we keep getting of bond 25 no time to die being um, delayed multiple times. I felt very awkward that when that movie does come out and I eventually see it that it'll be the one that I see and won't be able to talk to him about. He and I had recently connected again over the summer before he passed away talking about the new movie release and also that you know, there's a, a weird awkwardness thinking about um, Sean Connery passing away, which is part of the reason that we're doing this film as a commemoration to him, but Connery passing away shortly after Adam as well. And I know how much this was part of my high school years, part of my upbringing. I have posters of this all over my uh, apartment. And th- this franchise has been something that I've... Revered and enjoyed, and been a part of. And so, in one small way, I, I wanted to take a moment to kind of tribute what that relationship was and uh, how fond of it I, I am in retrospect from high school, and that I do remember and appreciate the time that I had with him doing those things. And it's going to be an odd time without him enjoying that still. All right, with that being said, um, as I mentioned, and I kind of did our tribute to Sean Connery in last week's episode, just gave a brief moment on him, but I I think the place to start, and I, I do think that we need to have a few moments just on Connery himself. Because of what he means to the franchise and uh, how he signifies the franchise. I know usually the first Bond that you watch tends to be the one you relate the most to. So there have been four really different generations of James Bond. I know we kind of have thus forgotten Timothy Dalton, who did two movies. And George Lazenby, who actually was a very good Bond for the one movie that he did. But... The kids from the 70s grow up with Roger Moore being their Bond. And the kids from the 90s grow up with Pierce Brosnan being their Bond. And the newer age kids, if they watch these even at all, it's Daniel Craig. But for the classic fans, and the because I watched some of these movies first, Connery is the Bond. I mean, I personally like Daniel Craig more than uh, Moore or Brosnan, but there's a certain... <sighs> what You would refer to it as je ne sais quoi, an intangible quality to him that just makes him fit. Uh, the The closest we've gotten to it is Craig, but you know there's... And I keep looking for it. And I remember when, because I'm I'm this much of a dork, I used to look up, you know, how to be attractive to women. (laughs) How did that work for you? Yeah, it hasn't worked out so well so far. But still, there's something called the James Bond smirk. It's this, so they, they pointed specifically to Daniel Craig in... Some of the train sequences in Casino Royale where it's this like half smile. He never shows any teeth, but he's got this like glowing confidence and like he just got away with something and you can tell, but it's not like an obvious smile and it has this like just uber infused confidence and it comes from Connery. Connery does that so many times in this movie. Like, he's got the upper hand at any one time, even though he's captured or he's being uh, tackled to the ground by who knows what. But he's always got this throwaway line that uh, he's got this air of confidence constantly about him that isn't off-putting, but just kind of cool. And I really don't know how else to put it. There's an intangible quality to it. And I think that's why, for whatever reason, he epitomizes what people come to know as the James Bond character. Anytime they're describing it, they're describing his
1: original portrayal in some way. I used to do a game with people years, or years ago, probably ten years or more. But I would say... I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to either give me the right answer, or if you give me the wrong answer, I'm going to tell you who the right answer is. And then you're going to go, oh, yeah, you're right. And I'd say, who's the coolest man in the world? And then you'd get answers like, well, you know, uh, Obama, or you'd get uh W or you get a lot of Clooney's you got yeah okay and then you would go no it's Sean Connery and they'll go yeah yeah there's just this supreme level confidence that
0: you've always got this it's not even like it's confidence in the face of uh, condescension You somehow have straddled the line between supreme confidence without being off-putting. That's the
1: best way I can describe it. Well, and the thing is, is that if you studied the MI6 agents, they always were of a similar ilk. They were uh, very well-bred, usually Oxford or Cambridge. They were from old money. Their parents were dead, and they had no close living relatives, but they had a, uh, uh, a trust fund or property that paid them an income so that they never had to worry about money ever in their lives. So they tended to be more soft and more debonair and worldly, but there was no edge to most of them, other than just being more or less tough and not really having anything to worry about so they would be willing to sacrifice themselves without anything because they didn't have anybody who, you know, they didn't have wives, they didn't have children, they didn't have parents even that cared about them. That was what the whole concept was. They didn't, or, you know, Connery was not somebody they were looking at per se to be Bond, but Connery who came from Edinburgh and who, had worked in a steel mill and had worked in a coal mine and who had been a uh, actually a professional um, footballer uh, in the, I think that was still the Premier League back then. Uh, the Premier for, League's only existed since 92. Okay, so well, it was in one of the leagues uh, back then um, and played for a year or two. So he had a toughness that came through his background that, Uh, really became part of the character of Bond that was not necessarily in the Ian Fleming mold from the books.
0: Well, no, because when they were casting it, originally, um, the guy that uh, Ian Fleming wanted to be cast as Bond was his cousin, Christopher Lee. Yeah. Who famously plays the man with the golden
1: gun. And they really wanted, in uh, when Dr. No was done, the, the character they originally sought was Roger Moore. But Roger Moore was doing a, a show on the BBC that was also popular in the United States as being sold, The Saint. And uh, they wouldn't let him out of his contract. So that's why Roger Moore did not get the Bond part to begin with. Uh, subsequently, when that show ended and he was available, that's how he ended up being Bond. I guess we, we can move on to what is this movie about, but
0: I, this is one of the rare times where this isn't necessarily like an artistic movie. It doesn't have to be about anything. It's just tacit entertainment. Yes. I mean, the best I could come up with is kind of like a summary of the franchise. Secret Agent Saves the Day while balancing a life of fast cars, fast women, and fast liquor in some of the most exotic and beautiful locations in the
1: world. What made the Bond film so key back at that time was is world travel was not something people did. It was not uncommon for people to barely leave their state in, you know, inside the United States, let alone travel the world. And in every Bond film you know, they would be in Zurich, and then they would be in Tokyo, and then they would be in Oslo, and then they're in London, and then in, you know, uh, California, and, you know, people were used to seeing these places, and Bond allowed you to see them in color uh, on a big screen, so that you almost experienced being there yourself, and then, of course, it's all the the women and the and the liquor and the danger. I mean, every. I think at some point in time, every guy has envisioned themselves if they could have been a secret agent. But,
0: well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's the
1: uh,
0: male fantasy. There are no consequences, you can get into fights, you're always going to win them, your suit's never going to get ruffled, you have this supreme air of confidence, you're going to save the world just in time, get the girl, and be able to live your life with almost no consequences whatsoever. Like, how is that not the epitome of male fantasy? Well, at least heterosexual male fantasy. Well, yeah. So, I, I guess we've kind of probably led this one. I would dare say that I'm pretty certain you and I gave best performance to the same person. And it's because we've been talking about them or
1: about him the entire time. But Sean Connery? Of course, this is by far his best Bond film. He's uh, the most comfortable in this role. Um, There's nothing awkward. It's almost like he had grown into the role. And this is, you know, and when the Goldfinger came out, he, did the shooting of this after he had done two other films like within the previous six months um, and I can't remember what the first one was um, but the second one was a was a Hitchcock film, Marnie, which is one of my favorite Hitchcock films uh, with Tippi Hedren well right before he did Dr.
0: No, he had just gotten done doing The Longest Day beside the point I would say if you. Dr. No is a little bit different and he is figuring things out, but that the uh, premise of the movie is a little bit different. But there's not much difference between his performances in uh, From Russia with Love, which was number two, Goldfinger, Thunderball, or You Only Live Twice. The main difference in this one by comparison to From Russia with Love is that it sets up kind of the main structure of James Bond. Ultimately, that he's going to have this big opening sequence that we're going to talk about. There's going to be the big, bombastic title credit song, uh, even though we got a little bit of that with from Russia With Love and we got a little bit of that from Dr. No, but it wasn't quite the same where Goldfinger's somewhat of a showstopper. We got all the gadget, um, Q-branch stuff that kind of gets thrown in that obviously is going to come back around where he's going to use whatever gadget in some very creative way to get him out of a tight jam. There's a car chase. It's the first real car chase that I can remember in the franchise. Uh, and ultimately it delivers some of its best lines. You know, It has more than any of the other ones – uh, probably those like uh, I don't know what you would call them bond witticisms. Uh, he kills the guy by knocking the toaster into the bathtub and remarks,
1: "Shocking fan."
0: It was okay. an electric fan, yes, but positively shocking. Yeah. But that's that's the kind of like witticisms uh, that they made fun of ultimately in uh, several different ways, which we'll get to in the legacy conversation. So I guess it's probably more interesting to move on to our best secondary performer because we talked ad nauseum already
1: on Connery. But who did you have down? Uh, Gerd Frobe. He had a presence. They found him. He had been a British, or I mean, in a, a German film. His English was really poor, and most people don't realize his voice was dubbed in this film because his English was so bad that he was not—he he was having a difficult time saying his lines clear enough that you understood. So they dubbed him with an actor by the name of Michael Collins, who uh, did the lines. So he doesn't actually speak. You can watch on the bonus, the collector's bonus edition that I have, um, some of the scenes where he actually did the lines, and he his German accent is really pronounced. But he did have a real presence, and they did, the. or both uh, Salzburg and uh, Broccoli really did do an exhaustive hunt. Saw him in this uh, German film, thought he had this quality that would be perfect for uh, Goldfinger, and hired him. And then figured out he couldn't speak English very well. But I thought he did a very good job overall and uh, did present himself extremely well. Sometimes the facial expressions and the devil-may-care attitude about some really horrendous things was quite almost evil. I mean, he just had a knack for smiling when it wasn't really appropriate, but I thought he did a very good job for that reason.
0: I thought about him in a lot of different ways, and I had no idea he was dubbed. So that's that's complete news to me but ultimately I thought there was just somebody else that it, it was very difficult when you're not one of the key characters to create somebody so remarkable and memorable that you're still a easily referenced part of film culture and it's Harold Sakata who played odd, odd job he has no lines in the entire movie which of course you get you cast a minority in a movie and then give him no lines you just give him a couple of grunts but <laughs> ultimately the hat throwing sequence and the statue and all of the other pieces that go into it have created one of the most famous henchmen of all time he is an equal parts a
1: equal antagonist to goldfinger in this movie the interesting thing is, is if you uh, know anything, back in the early days of television, sporting events were difficult to uh, to broadcast because you had limited cameras that you could use. So some of the most popular sports in the early fifties were boxing and professional wrestling. He was a professional wrestler and made quite a few, or had quite a uh, long career as a professional wrestler and then went into acting um, more or less as he got older and could no longer be a professional wrestler and so you know when he's the body or the build you have here for him is quite remarkable and for that very reason the thing I found interesting is is that he ended up with second and third degree burns the scene where the hat gets stuck in the cage at yeah. Fort Knox and then Bond puts the electric charge in it. it. That wasn't supposed to actually shock him, but it did. But because he was so worried about the scene not coming out, he held on to the hat, even though it was burning his flesh. Okay. Um. Yeah. He ended up having to be treated and had to have his hands bandaged is hand bandaged after that for for a couple of weeks. That's I how seriously did more research on this than I did. <laughs> well, okay, that's my job.
0: Uh, most charismatic. I think this is a throwaway on this episode. It's Connery. It's yes. Connery. I mean, we we'd be better off trying to try and talk about somebody else, but we already basically said as much. And how we discussed him, that he just has this air to him that is always there. And even in later films, he has a certain confident, uh, intangible quality to him that still makes him incredibly charismatic. I don't care if you're watching The Untouchables or Highlander, which don't watch Highlander, uh, or (laughs) The Hunt for
1: Red October.
0: Yes. Yes. Or even finding Forester, where he's being kind of his old curmudgeon-y self. All right, let's move on to best scene, though. Uh, do you want to give a first nominee? The gin rummy
1: at the pool scene. So that was my first one too. But why? Uh, I just think it kind of sets up the whole thing. What Goldfinger will do or won't do in order to, to win. You know, no rule is uh, uh, is there that can't be broken, no technology can't be used in order to gain a financial advantage, and Bond just is able to playfully manipulate somebody into uh, a terrible situation. It's all of those situations and more that
0: he gains the upper hand by being clever, by... Doing things with his charm and ability to just kind of be almost like a con man and get the upper hand in a way that sees him essentially. It gives this air of bondness that he doesn't even need to wave a gun in order to beat the villain sometimes. And because of that quality. I think it it ultimately then gives way to a equally weighted scene, and that's where uh, he gets knocked out and the gold paint scene and everything else that is kind of iconic to this movie. Uh, I don't know if I'd put it as most indelible necessarily, but uh, it's on all the posters. It's it's constantly mentioned in the the legacy of this movie. So. But you have to give way where he gets the upper hand early enough for the villain to come back and beat him at his own game in several ways. And he has to constantly keep improving or meeting the challenge or raising his own ability to the challenge in order for him to be an authentic or a character that we continually come back for. Uh, the part of the hero's journey quality is is that they have to lose occasionally, in order for that to make the stakes that much more important when they ultimately prevail. So I will go with the next one. I'm going to go with uh, what I have nicknamed Slosinger 7. <laughs> All right. And I did not pay attention very well in this movie the first couple of times I saw it. And the reason why some of or this scene is particularly memorable, other than it just being pure fun and funny, There is no other espionage movie that would do an entire scene on a golf course. But I remember very distinctly my grandfather uh, pulling a Schlozinger out of his bag one day and saying, hey, you know who else uses a Schlozinger? But for the pieces that go into that scene of... uh, Him basically, yet again, using some level of cleverness and confidence to uh, hide his ball, to trick him in order to get the upper hand yet again. And all of the playfulness that is experienced in that scene, I think it's just a really well-worked scene that's incredibly unique, not just to this movie, but any of these action movies
1: in general. What's your next nominee? Uh, The scene with Q. I mean, that's really the first time you had ever been in the lab and got to see all the stuff going on and what they were working on and all the just the bizarre little things that they were doing.
0: In in many ways, this movie is like um, what people say about a season or two of television. I think, what was it, Mike Schur was on a... T- or a podcast recently, and he basically said, I wish they would let us make 10 or 11 episodes of TV and then let us um, show the actual sh- sh- show at that point because it takes you know enough episodes to basically figure out the format and the right things to do, and you can see that in our podcast. So not that I'm uh, necessarily encouraging you to uh, stay away from our first Roughly about five or six episodes, but they're much different than how the podcast is now, that we're, you know, some 35, 36 episodes later. But you have a natural evolution of the show that kind of works itself out in a lot of ways in your early years. And I think the expansion on certain themes, the cars, the gadgets, the Q branch, all of these other things that became huge tropes of the show – It's like a really good TV show getting into its second or third season and figuring out exactly
1: what its identity is and then really steering into it. Salzburg and and Broccoli figured out the formula, which is if I spend more money on special effects and on big action shots, I'll make it up on the other end at the box office. So I'm surprised you
0: haven't nominated this one yet to this point. Well, but My next one is The Laser Table. Ah, uh, I was waiting. Okay, and this is the only reason why I've nominated this one. There are so many people that make fun of the James Bond villain, and it comes around. Again, we're going to end up revisiting this a little bit in Legacy, but it's hard not to mention Austin Powers. And there's a scene in the first Austin Powers where he's like, I'm going to kill him with this really extravagant, complicated way. And Seth Green's character, Scotty, why don't I just get a gun? We'll shoot him. He's dead. And every Bond villain fits this exact quota. They come up with the most elaborate ways of trying to kill James Bond. And they all fail because they're so ridiculous and it basically just allows for the villain to monologue for about five minutes about their really secret evil plan to destroy the world. And then in the um, (laughs) intervening moments, Bond uses whatever gadget Q gave him about an hour earlier in the movie to escape this methodology. The only scene that is closely equivalent to this is when James Bond is stuck in the gator pond in Live and Let Die because it's so low, lowbrow. In this particular scene, basically Goldfinger has a laser pointed at his junk and he's going to kill it. He's not mincing words. He doesn't try and do this big monologue. He doesn't care about the rest of that. And so for one glimmering moment... We actually have a villain who's just interested in killing our protagonist.
1: Well, and of course, killing him by starting with his crotch, which would, for James Bond, be the worst form of death. So, what is your next one? Well, let's see here. I had the Fort Knox scene, the climactic
0: scene. Okay, that was my last one. I got a couple of others intervening, but why did you
1: have that one down? Well, it's just really... It's one long, protracted shot that puts you on the edge of your seat. And the first time you watch it, you don't know what's going on. And it starts with the the uh, nerve gas and everything, and then got um, you know got to the point where the bomb's going to go off, and you know it's just one long. See of intense or of intensity? I think I would cut it down. So I don't need
0: the first probably 10 minutes where they're breaking into Fort Knox. But once you get to the point where you get into the middle of the shootout, they close the vault and odd job and bond are basically fighting over, um, uh, whether or not bond can defuse the bomb. I think that whole last roughly five to 10 minutes there really, really works. And even up to the point of the the clock ticking down and uh, all of the things that go into the suspense and the tenseness of that, mo- or that moment just work every single time for me. Even up to the campiness of it being 007 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. My next one, though, was the Aston Martin shootout. It's... Probably the first one. I wouldn't say this is the most iconic car sequence, but this was just kind of that tipping point. And again, we bring it back to this is why this has become the classic Bond film is is this is the movie that basically tipped off all of these big moments and all of the uh, car sequences and other things that were to come as they continued to expand out. Much in the same way that a lot of people credit um, like Fast Five and the Fast and Furious franchise with being how the franchise really started to define itself and then expand based on that. And they just kept raising the stakes every single uh, movie until they just got so ridiculous. It's essentially the same thing. And so this is the first one where we get the full car sequence. We get the ejector seat, the oil slicks, the machine guns. Everything is part of this and all of the gadgetry that goes around that. Although we got a few pieces before that where uh, he has the tire blowout. But all of the things that go into the car and why it's become the uh, iconic Bond car are from this movie. And so I thought it needed to at least be recognized. Did you have any other uh, yeah. scenes to nominate?
1: The, the final scene with the... Uh on the plane flying to meet the president. Goldfinger ends up getting sucked out into uh, the atmosphere. I thought it was uh, a telling way to end the film, trot everything to a close. The bad guy ultimately loses. It had been foreshadowed earlier in the film. <clears throat> so it came back, and I just thought it was a nice way to tie it up.
0: It's always a good use of writing where you basically foreshadow something and you know it's going to come back later on. But it's not necessarily something that is a a big giveaway early on in the movie. It's just something that seems like a throwaway and then ultimately pays off big in in another spot. So I I would tend to agree on that little note. I don't know about the scene as a whole. It just seems kind of campy to me. Um, with the way things, and you even look at Gert Frob's face as he's being sucked out, he looks like a blowfish. But, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. uh,
0: the only other scene that I had to nominate was Operation Grand Slam, where he pulls the, or, you know, what's with that trick pool table? And then gets all the guys into we have pioneered everything in all of these areas, except crime! And it's just such a goofy moment. And it yes. will come back in later questions, but it's oh, the yes. the first like big stakes uh, moment in a James Bond movie. The villain that's going to do this huge plan. It he in that moment, it's like uh, uh, the Penguin is going uh, <laughs> to infiltrate Gotham's water supply.
1: Well, you know, and the one gangster had a pressing engagement.
0: Such crappy
1: lines like that. <laughs>
0: All right, so which of these, though, is I guess would you say is the best?
1: I I love the laser scene. I mean, and uh, you know, and I am going to tell you right up front. I've been quoting that line most of my life. No, Mister hey, Bone, I expect you to die. Yes, and you sound like Count Chocula every time. <laughs> uh, my German accent isn't
0: the best. I'm going to go with defusing the bomb. I I just think that scene still works incredibly well, and it pays off in such a a great, tense moment. Because even now, you're still not even sure that they're going to save Bond, or that he's going to be able to save the day in the end. And it's such kind of that uh, throwaway anticlimactic, they flip a switch inside the bomb, (laughs) that it
1: it just works so well in that regard. By the Uh, way, another another, uh, point... In that scene, you know, because Bond gets or Connery gets thrown around, he actually injured his back quite severely in that scene, in one of the um, stunts he was doing. At the time, they had the contract for the next film, which helped me out here, which was the next one. I just said it, Thunderball. Thunderball, and uh, they wanted him to sign, and he kind of the 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 thought is by most experts. He milked it a bit because he was kept telling Broccoli and Salzburg that, uh, you know, it's too dangerous. This film's really dangerous. I think I need more money if I'm going to keep putting myself at risk like this. And he ended up with a sizable increase in pay to do Thunderball.
0: There's certainly no strangeness for let's say, injuries in these action films. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that Tom Cruise has survived as much as he has, although there are people... I think there are um, sites who can do betting markets on whether Tom Cruise is going to die in space for the next uh, Mission Impossible movie. But there, quite famously, a couple of years ago when Daniel Craig basically said that he was done with uh, the franchise that... So... I'm trying to find the list of injuries that he had here. Um, <laughs> tore the labrum, the connecting cartilage in his right shoulder during an aerial stunt. Ruptured both of his calf muscles, uh forcing Ooh. him into rehab. I know he's had a knee replacement. <laughs> oh. Oh yeah, he had a full uh, he had to be wearing a knee brace for most of Specter. <laughs> So, I mean, it's quite substantial, the amount of damage you have to go through in order to play this character. And yet his suit is never seemingly wrinkled. So, my favorite scene, though, I'm going to go with Slazenger 7. I, I don't know why it's so classically good. It's just, there there's con man heist element qualities to that scene within a action caper type of situation, and it just works
1: for me. It always has. Oh, one other little tidbit. Do you know who they originally had in mind to play Goldfinger? No idea. Orson Welles.
0: That would have been an interesting one, but... They, uh, they made different- some
1: inquiries oh. and found out what his price was
0: and said, No. <laughs> yeah. He also would have been an absolute headache to work with. Of course. But uh, he would have... He would have... Been able to do the part. It's just a very different film. But what's your
1: favorite? The laser scene. Best. Oh, all right. So movie. it's best scene, favorite scene. It's the same thing to me. It's my. It's the scene that I remember the most in this particular film. It's not always the same, but in this film, it is to me. Your most indelible moment, sir. It's probably the same one because. that's the scene I remembered when I was a kid, although I will take that back. The one scene I said at the beginning was that I remembered because it was just shocking to see a semi nude woman painted in gold when you're seven. Um, So both of those would probably be scenes that I carried with me far into my adolescence when I started watching the Bond films more often and they were more readily available as cables started to come about.
0: I'm going to go with Odd Job knocking the head off the statue. I think that's been recreated I don't know how many times. Sure. I, I think it's, it's probably one of the most iconic moments in film history, so that to me seems rather easy, although you could take that for a number of things in this movie. The one thing I will say about the gold-painted murder, let's say, of uh uh, jill masterson the character name from the movie there's been a long-standing rumor that they painted her gold and she ended up dying as a result during the course of this movie which has been proven false multiple times because she lived into her mid-80s and she just passed away not too long ago uh actually so you cannot actually kill somebody uh even with this supposed bear patch thing You can paint somebody completely gold. You only need to look at football fans in order to prove that uh, painting someone's body is not going to cause them damage. Wrong.
1: Because who was the original Tin Man in The uh, Wizard of Oz? Okay, if you use lead-based paint... (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. Buddy Ebsen. And he got lead poisoning, so they had to replace him with Jack Haley. Because... He got lead poisoning and was in the hospital for a couple of months. So let's take a quick break. We will be right back.
0: All right, welcome back. We'll jump right into Best Lines. What is your first nominee, Pop? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There's nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. If you're going to do the line, finish it. Fine. Well, I was going to say, you expect me to talk. Because that's the whole point. Is interrogation, that there's going to be this whole thing. No, I expect you to die. There's no reason for me to try and get any information out of you. You don't know anything. That's what makes this scene. This should have been the model for all of those scenes, and it's not. <laughs>
1: uh Yeah, okay.
0: Except they steered into the campiness. Now, they've gotten it a little bit better as time has gone on. I think they've done a really good job um, in more of the Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig eras. But, gosh, swing and a miss after this on some of these. I mean, they just got so ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah um first one for me shocking positively shocking which we've already kind of mentioned before so i don't need to throw in a whole lot of context to this one but it's after he kills the guy in the bathtub with electrocution so but to me that's the first like bond quip
1: shaken not stirred
0: i mean that that by itself is iconic that is the thing it's known for. They bring it back how many different times? And I've, and for a while when the I went through the AFI list. So the AFI list has two different James Bond quotes. The first one is the first appearance of Connery, which doesn't happen for about I want to say about ten or fifteen minutes of the of Doctor No, and uh, the first one we get it. Um, and your name, sir? Bond. James Bond. And it's this, um, they play the Bond theme song, and it's this whole introduction to the character and uh, how we're supposed to take it. And so it's got this own thing. And I thought for sure that a martini, shaken not stirred, had been said somewhere before this movie. But it's not. This is the first semblance of that um, going forward. Now, I don't know if... uh, They ever said a vodka martini before this? I think I'd have to look up, because I think he orders a martini before this, but it's not the shaken, not stirred. Correct. And the amount of time that has been spent in the last 20 years, and the amount of times I've heard this line, what he's really ordering is a really watery martini, says enough about its iconicness just there.
1: You got another one? I was trying to think back to a, of what lines, and I really didn't have anything that I thought really struck me as significant. I mean, there are a few lines here and there, but not anything that's that significant.
0: I've got two more. My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above the temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. I had thought about that, but yeah. Uh, the other one, if that's his original ball, I'm Arnold Palmer. Yes. Tis it. How do you know? I'm standing on it. <laughs> so that's going to be my uh, nominee for funniest line. Any objection? No. What, though, is the best line?
1: Well, I've already told you my opinion, which is the, I expect you to die. That's been my favorite, most uh, significant line for ever. So I'll just stick with what I've been doing for most of my life.
0: If you don't have a significant objection, though, I think most people are going to take away a martini shake and not stirred. So I'll put your line into honorable mention. But that's fine. I, I, I don't think that there's a huge amount of disagreement. Again, most of these are like one-off lines. This isn't one of the more significant line movies. These are meant to be entertainment action movies, and so you get some quip here or there that might resonate, but overall it has more to do with the atmosphere, the feeling, the... Action sequences of the movie than it does anything with the dialogue.
1: Well, this uh, this was the first Bond film to have a, an Academy Award nomination. Correct.
0: So, it, it, and I mentioned that in our um, uh,
1: recognition. Segment. So it's not like it's uh, this is something the Academy is just going. Oh, this is so good; it deserves our adoration. So, well,
0: no, but. The, okay, other than the first Rocky movie and Star Wars and Take Out Lord of the Rings, are there any major franchises, and I mean franchises, that are really getting recognized uh, for anything other than like sound or special effects or a- any <laughs> of that type of stuff?
1: Well, yeah, and uh, to some extent... Hollywood takes themselves so seriously that even if a film was a franchise and it was done extremely well, they're not going to get it because it's a franchise. There's a lot of people who think that the reason Hitchcock was ignored so much for being uh, the director that he was is because he saw the possibility to earn a huge chunk of change by doing television too and it kind of kicked off everybody in Hollywood that he was trying to capitalize on his fame as a director by making money on Schlock, which was what they deemed television.
0: If Hollywood were more self-aware and actually gave awards to the best movies, we wouldn't need to do this podcast. Well, okay. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our Stanley rubric. I should have like a musical cue for that, like
1: for season two. Um, Maybe we can find some sort of a trumpet sound from uh, the Holy Grail.
0: I'm thinking of more of uh, something from, or like a one-liner or something from, like, Dr. Strangelove.
1: That would work.
0: All right. Uh, What do you have down for Legacy?
1: I have uh, 9.5. There's so many things in this film that have been utilized again in other films, have been mocked, have been laughed at, have been held in esteem. I mean, from the the scene where he's trying to kill Bond to the shaken, not stirred, to the whole method. I mean, you even talk about when they made the parody films, um, and I can't remember what these, they were horror films they put uh Dr. Phil and uh, uh Shaq in the same scary scene. movie. Huh? Yeah, scary yeah. movie. And you know, that that's the same thing. Making an elaborate methods to kill people. Um and and that's that's where this all started. Growing up as a kid, one of my favorite shows was the Beverly Hillbillies. And for an entire season, Jethro pretend, or said he was going to be a double ought Uh, agent or a double knot agent and set up an armor plated uh, wash tub that he dropped down while he was driving the truck and all kinds of stuff I mean that really became it and the whole spy genre of films permeated through we had tons of television shows that started The Saint and we had Oh, what was the one with uh, um, Diana Rigg's? Ah, I can't even remember it off the top. And Patrick McFay. Even the fact that the this this kind of became the parody that uh, Mel Brooks and uh, Buck Henry did to create "Get Smart" as a TV show. It's just lasted forever. We've mentioned it throughout that this is the structure that.
0: Most of the subsequent Bond movies, which will be up to 22 uh, when we get Bond 25 or uh, No Time to Die at some point, whenever it actually comes out, um, thanks 2020 and COVID. Uh, but the fact that you have 22 subsequent movies, this is by far the most prolific, long-standing franchise in Hollywood. I mean, this is almost longer than most soap operas have been on. And most of this movie has created so many iconic pieces of the Bond structure. The Aston Martin, the Martini, the uh, notion of names like Pussy Galore. You know, all of these tropes that we get, the quips, the, you know, everything that is made fun of in Austin Powers for like three movies, it basically has a root in this movie in some capacity. And so, so for the espionage boom that you already mentioned and all of the pieces that are there, and I'll throw in a third part of this. There are two things that I will almost automatically click on every time. Like, Google throws these things up into my feed when I'm I'm checking my Google News or whatever uh, pretty much every day. And they will throw one of these, like, uh, every month into my feed. And there's nothing that I will click on faster than one of these three things. Christopher Nolan Films Ranked, Bond Films Ranked, and uh, Best Picture Films Ranked. I will click on all three of those, almost no doubt, which is why they keep showing up in my feed. But I don't think I've ever seen a list where Goldfinger is lower than three. So this is the iconic classic Bond film. This is the one that I, I've told people, if you only watch one, you watch this one.
1: Yes, it is, it is, in my opinion, the very best Bond film um, the only one that I would even come close to um, saying is, is comparable is, um, why am I drawing a blank, the Daniel Craig film uh was Boyhood Home. Skyfall? Uh, Skyfall. I think uh, of the more modern Bond films, Skyfall's the best. I would probably rank Goldfinger, than Skyfall one and two for me personally
0: i think there are a lot of people that would tend to agree with you on that one so i I don't see that as being an issue but ultimately uh, that's why i I mirror your 9.5 so there's no disagreement whatsoever there i think this is the classic uh impact significance i went with a nine Again, we talked about this and the espionage boom of the 60s. We had uh, movie stars all over the place all of a sudden going into these espionage films, even to the extent of like Dean Martin doing them by the end of the decade, and all of the subsequent things that we've gotten, all of the narratives, uh, the Mission Impossible TV franchise to a certain extent is based off of uh, these pieces. So all of this is kind of wrapped into this franchise kind of kicking it off, and... Even though the first two movies had been released, there were a lot of U.S. locations that didn't show these movies until Goldfinger came out and was on the scene. And so you had a lot of double feature movies where they were showing Dr. No and Goldfinger back to back. And I will also put in, this is the first time that we had to have theaters staying open 24 hours a day because of the amount of people that were seeking out trying to watch this film. So I think there was a a huge... Uh, pop cultural phenomenon that came with this movie specifically out of this franchise and and really exploded how we looked at it. It had a huge box office at the time. Uh, yes. In in retrospect, I don't think inflation adjusted; it's quite as big as a lot of other ones. But the the franchise is what it is because of this movie. And I know that last comment makes it more of a legacy thing, but in the immediate future, you got. Uh, Another two Connery films you got then carrying on to Lazenby because it was just so popular that they had to figure out how to continue to do the series or the franchise even without the guy who made it. So I think from that standpoint, I am pretty forced to give it a nine. What do you have to say? I had a nine. For much the same reason. We're, we're finding a lot of congruence in these last couple of episodes.
1: Well, these are these are films that we both are uh, that are in our wheelhouse. That are films that we both uh, love, and uh, for almost the same reason. So that's kind of the whole point. I will give the audience a peek
0: behind the curtain. We do not discuss our numbers ahead of the show at all. We come to these independently. So the fact that we come together and have the exact same mirroring numbers is just pure coincidence. Yeah, we're
1: recording for the most part. We're recording remotely. Um, I'm two hours away from you um, for the most part when we're doing these. Um, The early episodes we weren't, but uh, you've moved and uh, I haven't. And so we, we talk on the phone periodically, but uh, other than to schedule the time we're recording, it's we don't talk about this uh, podcast that often. All right. Let's move into novelty, though.
0: This isn't as novel as something like Dr. No was with the swimsuit situation, but it did go there in a couple of different ways. So, number one, we've mentioned it a bunch of different times. So the first real evolution of Q Branch and the gadgets and the cars and that sort of thing. And we kind of start to get some of the seeds for how they're going to expand in later parts of the franchise that become the staples of uh, modern action movies. The car chases, the hand-to-hand combat type of stuff that's a little bit uh, bigger in this movie, although there is a a big scene in... um, from Russia with love in a train compartment that, but again, I don't think the public at large saw that movie before they saw this one. So it's a different situation a little bit in that regard, but I think I will give it a a little bit higher of a grade. I don't know. I'm going to give it a 7.5, but the one thing that's the most audacious to me is, the name Pussy Galore and getting away with it.
1: <sighs>
0: I I'm guessing you
1: had a 7.5? Yes. I thought for sure we were going to be different on this one. I had originally thought about a 7 and then I thought more about it and I'm like, even though this was the, you know, further along in the film process or the the, the franchise, I thought for sure there were so many elements that were still novel and how they were presented, and all the different aspects of it that I thought were much more interesting. But you anyway, want to know
0: something really ironic. I literally just changed it from a seven to a seven point five as I was talking about it. <laughs> all right. So not only were our final scores the same, but we had the same thinking process. Uncanny. All right. Uh classicness, I think, is the part where I'm going to have the most issues. So I'm going to allow you to go because I have kind of, let's say, a long monologue on the difficulty of this particular category on this movie and this franchise overall. So I'll give you the space to explore it first, and then I'm going to go. All right. This is,
1: this is a little bit... Um, there's a difference between what I observed watching the film and what I know about the film. Um, and the, this is, let me explain the difference. In the book, Pussy Galore is a lesbian, and that James Bond, by his just sheer animal magnetism, converts her into a heterosexual. And I'm sitting there going, knowing that, and then watching the film, I'm going, really not good. And then watching the film, it's not quite, you know, thinking about just the film, it's not quite that bad. If it were the latter, I would say it's probably about a four and a half, five. Uh, If it were just the former, it would be about a seven. So I compromised instead of six. Okay, we finally differ. Not by much, but
0: we differ. So I know this has been a wide-ranging topic. These are movies that have been on cable and have been, uh, you know, there has not been at least three different, like, TNT, TBS, AMC, Bond movie marathons per year for as long as I can remember. These things are constantly on all over the place. You can't miss them, more or less. And I, I am almost shocked that we haven't had like a retrospective Bond marathon when Connery died. But, there is a lot of complication with some of these earlier movies. With how we have played into the male fantasy and how let's say we have matured or uh, nuanced what um, should be the epitome here. So, the drinking is Uh, They've explored it better in more modern films, the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig movies. Drinking and alcoholism become not necessarily good things uh, that they uh, specifically refer to, I think, in the last um, Pierce Brosnan movie that his liver is just completely shot. And so uh, they do at least have a little bit of self-awareness in that moment to say that, yeah – Liquor for three might have been funny in the 60s, but by the by time we're getting to about 2003, we maybe need to have this moment of self-reflection. Uh, the fact that we have a Korean henchman in a 60s film uh, that isn't like the Green Hornet, but basically is kind of, in essence, the same kind of thing. But then we give him no lines except for a couple of grunts. Oh, oh. You know, <laughs> That makes it kind of complicated. The way that Bond interacts with women is extremely compli- complicated, including the fact that the scene that drives the climax of this movie is him essentially forcing himself on a woman. In a post Me Too world, I don't know how that is not seen poorly. Yes. But. You also have to give it that all of the iconic pieces about this that have made film culture and espionage movies that we've already talked about make into the classicness, I still think that uh, the scenes that are supposed to work work the way they are supposed to. The gin rummy scene, the golf scene, the diffusing of the bomb, all of those work. And while there are so many questions about this movie, because this was straddling a good line between the campy absurdity of the roger moore films where they just got so ridiculous and over the top that you couldn't even some of the later roger moore films i can barely watch because they're just so ridiculous but this one straddled it where at least this was in the realm of plausibility that it wasn't so over the top and it had a level of self-respectability yet, that it still makes it classic. And so, I ultimately gave it a 5.5 because I think it's just slightly more classic than average. So, that is our first deviation, but it was by <laughs> half a point. <laughs> okay. So, we had a 5.75 ultimately for that. All right, what is your rewatchability?
1: Uh, I had... Uh... A nine. I just, this film is one that if it's on, I'm, you know, following through. Unless I'm really in a bad mood, and that's why it's marked down from a ten, I'll watch it. Even if it's, you know, a few minutes. I, I can sit and watch it for about two minutes and figure out which film it is at this point, and I'll sit and watch it. Even if if it's just for, I'm waiting for something else, watch it for 15, 20 minutes, half hour move on. It's just something that I know I just have a comfort level that I can just sit and just enjoy it. Savor it. Like a fine wine. So, this is
0: pretty close to ten level for me. It's not quite there, but it's one of the most rewatched movies I've seen in my entire life. I am very curious to find out what the hell a ten is to you. Because I would have thought for sure that this would have at least been a 9.5, which is what I gave it. It's not quite a 10 because this isn't the immediate one I go to, but if I see this on Netflix and I'm just surfing around, it's probably going on. I don't even know if it's the most rewatchable Bond movie in my list. Again, I, I think there are other ones that I like just a little bit more, but this is so classic and it's fun and it's energetic that uh, it doesn't really lose me at all, but there are other ones that I've enjoyed a little bit more at different times. So I gave it a 9.5, so that'll end up averaging it down to um, 9.25 for us collectively.
1: In answer, I can name about four or five films that I would say are a 10. And I don't remember offhand what I gave Rio Bravo, and that's one that we later revisit. To me, that's probably, in retrospect, it should have been a 10 for me. Because I'll sit and watch real Bravo at any moment in time. Uh, I'd have
0: to look that one up, but my guess is, because I don't take it as individualized scores. Uh, I average them out on the show notes. So, I mean, I could take a second and look for you, but I'm pretty sure it's probably pretty high up on the list.
1: I would say that's a 10. I think uh, North by Northwest is pretty close to a 10 for me. Um, I think Apollo 13, for whatever reason, would be close to a 10 for me. And there are a few more films that I feel that way about. So just just me, but, I mean, that's the way I kind of feel.
0: I don't think you gave it a 10 because we averaged it out to a 9.25, so likely we had it very similar to this current um
1: Score. my yeah my guess is is that i'm was still we're, at that point in time we're still trying to feel around kind of for where this where the the sweet spot was in this category well i know what i I'm, I'm
0: truly comparing it against because it's it's one of those that i just constantly rewatch uh, and i know exactly which film it is but that's that's for another time and place Which we will be eventually covering that film. So, anyway, uh, with the audience score added in, that added 89 for an 8.9 in our scoring system. We have a 9.5 for Legacy, 9 for Impact Significance, 7.5 for Novelty, 5.75 for Classicness, 9.25 for Rewatchability, and 8.9 for audience score for a total of 49.9. And that places it for tied for number 13 in our list. uh, It will probably be technically somewhere in the range of about 15 or 16 in the online list because I can't do ties in the blogging system. Yeah, so in our online list, it'll end up placing a 16th. At least in the current iteration. I think maybe it's uh is deserving that we bring on somebody else to have her just down a little bit
1: oh well, yeah, we could put somebody like your mother on and that'll bring it down to no, but it would have probably been a little bit more self aware to put somebody that was
0: of uh the female variety that isn't uh, that at least the movie is likable to that isn't necessarily the uh imagined target audience for this, yeah. All right, let's get to remaining
1: questions. What do you have first? Okay. Um, How is it they're spraying gas all over the place and it doesn't affect any of the pilots? I guess I don't understand the question. I mean, why wouldn't the pilots also have died? You're just spraying the poison gas all over this broad area. There's no way that that gas could just spread over that area without also ended up killing the pilots. You're in a pressurized plane. No, they're not. They're Piper Cubs. They're not pressurized. Okay. Maybe this is a gross misunderstanding
0: of mechanical engineering and planes, but I, I figured this would have been sealed off, and that you're
1: basically just crop dusting the gas. No. It's not sailed off. They're Piper Cubs. They're just normal planes. They do not fly to a high altitude that you need to have them pressurized because oxygen is not a problem. They're, so, no. That's one of them. So, right. well, that's I one can't of my questions. I can't answer that one. So, it's a good
0: um, unanswerable question, let's say. Uh, my first one Why do you bother to show all of the gangsters your maniacal plan if you're just going to kill them in ten seconds anyway?
1: Yes. What's
0: the point of that?
1: I know. That's the one that has everybody.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just ridiculous.
1: All right. uh, Do you have another one? Yes. And, uh, I mean, are you actually telling me that James Bond was that good that he converted pussy galore. Yep, that's into my last other... one too. I mean, right, really? I mean, he uh, must your really only, be good. And your
0: only explanation is I appealed to her maternal instincts, which is the <laughs> worst way of phrasing that. Yeah. Ah, oh, God. I mean, that should almost knock down the classicness by itself.
1: Uh all right. Anything left? Well, I was just going to comment. If you did not know, uh, Gert Frobe had been a member of the Nazi party during, or during the 30s. And uh, as a not result... That's shocking of, for a guy who was blonde and blue-eyed. Yeah, and uh, for a while, um, the film was banned from being shown in Israel until about three to six months after the film was released when a Jewish family living in the United States... Uh, did a story that appeared in the AP where they thanked him because he had apparently, while being a a Nazi officer, had helped hide them from uh, the concentration camps. And so after that, he was a big hero, and it got to be all over in in Israel as well. You, You are definitely
0: bringing the research this week. That is a great note. So... Uh, any other remaining thoughts yet? I, I'm fl- no. Fl-
1: it's it. Let me just put it this way: in retrospect, okay, the film Doctor No came out the year before I was born, and I'm going to be 57 this month. So, in other words, there has not been a time in my life that there has not been Sean Connery and James Bond, and to say that it. Feels um, like there's a hole or uh, or a pit in my stomach and heart because this movie has been so iconic to me through my life and so you know prescient that I, I, I I'm to the point where when and I was always told this by other guys who are friends of mine who are a little older that you reach a point where you become really sentimental in your about your mid fifties. And I, I mean, if I stop to think about it, I just get very almost teared up by just the loss. And I mean, this is a man that I never knew, um, but I watched and had uh, a respect for as a human. I actually saw his house in the Bahamas um, when I was there. But and and it's it's as time goes by, I'm starting to feel the. uh the loss associated with the things that were part of my youth.
0: I I definitely understand. I mentioned it when we talked about doing this movie last week in the episode, that it's one of the few people that has been intergenerational. I think we're going to have a similar circumstance when we talk about like Harrison Ford or Mark Hamill or some of these other guys that have had Uh, different appeals to different generations because of an iconic character or two that they will have a complete missing presence when they're gone. And we've now lost Roger Moore. We've lost Sean Connery. And yeah, I don't think it's going to be a while probably before we lose uh, Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan, even though they're getting up there a bit. But Lazenby is in his mid-80s, I believe. And it's just interesting that we've kind of gotten to this point. Connery was 90. We knew it was coming at some point. It's just, it's different once you cross that barrier. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing the Philadelphia story, featuring some of the biggest classic Hollywood stars of all time. Cary Grant, the aforementioned James Stewart, and Katherine Hepburn. It is currently streaming on HBO Max if you want to check that one out before we discuss it next week, so stick around on this feed for that one. Please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to get in contact with us. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com